I want to reach 50% more listeners in the next three months, and I need your help. Will you share and subscribe? If I reach my goal, let's invent a cocktail to celebrate. How about an adventure Rita in Artslandia? Or do you have a better idea? Hey, everybody. I'm Susanna Mars, and welcome to Adventures in Artslandia. Today, I'm talking to Maricelo Trevino Orta, the author of Wolf at the Door, which is a play opening at Malagro Theater, May 2nd through the 25th. And the director of that play is also here, Rebecca Martinez. Thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you so yeah. much for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah. delightful. Uh, so I saw online that the play is described as a grim Latino fairy tale. Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate on that? Um, the grim part is really a nod to the Brothers Grimm and mm-hmm. to those really dark fairy tales, like the original fairy tales. Um, I mean, I grew up, the first fairy tales I encountered were Disney, mm-hmm. which are very sanitized. And um, kind of, there's some danger, but the stakes, it's not as dangerous. When I discovered the Brothers Grimm and the collection that they had put together of fairy tales, uh, it was almost shocking as a teenager, be like how much violence and darkness there oh, is. Oh, eyes it. being plucked out. People losing feet, things like that. It's just, it's bloody and dangerous. Yep. And so, so a lot the, of things happening to a lot of women. Yes. Yeah. Strangely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> or Strangely not. Strangely or otherwise. <laughs> so, so it's the the plays. This is a cycle of plays, actually. Mm-hmm. And so this is kind of like the title for the cycles. They're all grim. Next plays are fairy tales. So the fairy tales and the grim. That kind of really is the nod to like the European canon of fairy tales. Mm-hmm. Um, but they all draw the plays. All draw their inspiration from Latinx. Mythology, folklore, um, old stories from Latin America. So Wolf at the Door must have some significance, the title itself? Yes, (laughs) it does. (laughs) Um, So uh, I have very vivid nightmares, as we can (laughs) talk about later. I mentioned it before we started. (laughs) I had this nightmare several years ago that I was being chased by a pack of wolves. Mm. And uh, I I feel like I was in near Boulder. I had just been visiting or something. And the landscape just reminded me. I was like running around outside, trying to run away from these wolves. And I found a house. Like there were many houses. And I was like, this is my house. And I got into it. And I was like, I'm safe. But... I look outside and I realize this house is made of glass because I can totally see the wolves. And they, mm. they're all looking right at me. And I was like, this is not going to – they jump through the glass and come mm. out. And so I run upstairs, find myself into a um, – I find a bedroom and I'm closing the door and I'm holding it closed because it won't lock. And so they're mm. at the door like – the last image of the dream is um, teeth coming through the wood around the door handle. And I'm retelling this story to my coworkers the next morning, or this, this nightmare. And one of my coworkers stops me when I say the phrase, and there was a wolf at the door. And she's like, that would be a great title for a play. Oh, for heaven's sake. <laughs> yeah, and I, I don't usually, I do not write that way. I don't start with a title, but I did for this particular play. And at first, I was trying to write a, a myth. I really love Greek mythology. I grew up with a lot of it. And Who I was, brought it to you? What? Who brought the mythology oh, to? Was it two a family different or places? Or? I think it comes from um, uh, my fourth grade year. For some reason, the the English teacher had us reading Greek myths mm-hmm. the entire year. But I also loved astronomy. My father was really into astronomy, and constellations are all about you know mythology, like the, mm-hmm. how they're connected to those stories. So mm-hmm. I just really loved Greek mythology. Mm-hmm. So I tried writing a myth, and I was looking at um, <clears throat> mythology in Latin America around wolves, which there really isn't <laughs> any. So. Uh, 
And, and and when you look at Europe, their their mythology around wolves, usually it's all about werewolves. And I really didn't want to write a werewolf story. Mm-hmm. So then I was like, okay, well, wolf, let's still try. Let's try their cousin, canine cousin. And so dogs in Latin America, there is a, a Mesoamerican belief about dogs in the afterlife mm. that they carry the spirits of the dead on their back and they swim across a river, mm. taking, like, a, like the ferryman, you know, mm-hmm. taking their souls to the afterlife. And so that became... Um, uh, the inspiration point that started um, this play. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting because it sounds hopeful, and I know that there is the story within of an abusive relationship. Mm-hmm. So how did you get there, and, and how how is hope in the story? Hope, I think because the story is centered around um, a female protagonist who's reclaiming and regaining her agency. Mm. So... Um, you know, so so it's really tracking her progress um, over kind of a couple of days mm. um, as the house dynamic shifts drastically when a fourth character enters the home, mm. and I think it's it's you know what's so interesting is that um, dynamics can radically change when a new person comes into um, a situation mm-hmm. and they introduce new new ideas. They they just kind of shake things up, and this mm. this fourth person does that absolutely. Mm. And one of the things that I I was cluing in on this particular, there's a line that, that talks about being reborn mm. Mm. and it's particularly reference of motherhood, but it's also thinking of, of this, this central character, how she's finding her agency, but she's also, and discovering her inner ferocity mm. and just how the, the events of the play reveal something to herself mm-hmm. about what she is capable of and willing to do that uh, I, she never would have imagined. Yeah, it's so interesting because I I think of your story as feels like a microcosm of what's happening to so many cultures around the world and certainly in the United States and and myself included finding my own agency at, at this time in my life when especially women for me at least you know realizing the power that we have mm-hmm. when not even realizing what's held us back in the past because we just haven't even felt what it would be like to be the front of the story, the, the herstory, not the history. Mm-hmm. We don't, yeah, we're socialized to, to take a back seat and to apologize for kind of even existing or having thoughts. Yes. Um, you know, like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, yes. that I, that I, but, or I'm sorry I have an opinion or a question. And mm-hmm. it's like, no, you can have mm-hmm. opinions and questions and you can exist. So as a, as a Latinx playwright how you obviously have found some agency because you're in the position of having a, a rolling uh, opening. You're, mm-hmm. You've been a recipient of many prizes. Who and how did you gather that up? Um, it was all kind of, I came to theater, theater late compared to my peers. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, Is that right? Because you're very young. I have to do the math. I'm 42. <laughs> <laughs> I always, I just forget. I'm, mm-hmm. uh, I'm now like, I'm just, when I hit those fives, I'm, that's mm-hmm. when I'm like, let's celebrate that. <laughs> um, uh, I, I started out as a poet for very many years. In mm. fact, um, so I'm originally from Texas mm-hmm. and I left Texas in the early 2000s to go to San Francisco <clears throat> to get my first master's. And that was in creative writing at the University of San Francisco. But I focused solely on poetry I didn't know what I was going to do with that. I just knew that I, I needed to focus on my writing. Um, was there a childhood experience or something or someone who 
gave you that courage or was that just built? Did you, were you born with that? Both my parents are teachers Mm -hmm. and so they really um, encouraged reading. So I was reading from a very young age and I think we must have gotten, as teachers, they must have gotten like a discount or an old Apple IIGS computer. Mm. Apple IIGSs were still new at this time. It was like the 80s. And uh, I I remember writing short stories like with a floppy disk, like saving it on a freaking floppy, like those really big Uh ones. I remember that. Uh, And that's where I played Oregon Trail. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Oh, we were talking about Oregon Trail. Trail. We were talking about Oregon Trail the other day. The tragedy Um, of Oregon Trail. And so they they encouraged that. (laughs) Yeah. They encouraged me to to read and um, I didn't know what I wanted to even as a kid, I wanted to be everything. Um, but I, in high school, I started writing really bad angsty poetry, which I think is kind of a phase as mm-hmm. a poet. You have to write really bad poetry mm-hmm. before you get better at it. Mm. And I continued writing poetry in college and um, <clears throat> kind of put together like an, uh, a magazine, like for like campus magazine of like like Latinx like poetry and essays and short stories. Who are some of your favorite Latinx poets? Um, I, I guess, I mean... It sounds cliche, but I really do love Neruda. I mm-hmm. had to read a lot of Neruda. And Great. I mean, it's just, there's nothing like it. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. Mm. So beautiful. It's beautiful writing. And I graduated from college. So my degree is in history. Mm-hmm. And it was specifically Latin American history, which has helped, been so helpful as a playwright. Mm. And a couple of years after graduating, I was like, okay, well, let's do something. I don't know what, because I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, you know, in your 20s, you're figuring it out. And I was like, well, let's just go get it. Someone some, someone put it in my ear about, like, getting a master's in poetry. I was like, okay, well, let's go do that. Let's focus on that and do something. While I was getting my master's is when I found my way to theater. Mm. You know, I was at the University of San Francisco, which is a Jesuit institution. They're really big on trying to get their professors to create classes where the students engage with the community. Mm. And I had an on-campus job uh, in the Office of Service Learning, and we were doing like a promotional video mm. for the professors. And we interviewed a theater professor who was working with uh, his students and also immigrants uh, in the Mission District devising theater before I knew what the term meant. So I joined because I'm a very visually um, driven like writer. So as a poet, I needed images so they could produce a poem a week. Mm. So I just would hang out with them. And they were creating uh, a piece of theater and then I just started becoming like the Girl Friday. I was like taking pictures and making the playbill and like running rehearsal and buying props, doing all those things. And after a year, got curious about, well, how do you write a play? Mm-hmm. And that's what kind of put me on that path. And immediately, um, theater embraced me in a way that poetry had not. Because poetry is very solitary. You write by yourself. Maybe mm-hmm. you go perform your poems and you try and get it published. You send your work out. Theater, just because of its very nature of collaboration, it was just so much more welcoming, like and gregarious and like, come here, we love your work, you know. Mm. So I had some early supporters in the Bay Area, like um, the Playwrights Foundation. I had my first play selected by their annual festival that they do in the summer, the Bay Area Playwrights Festival. What was your first play about? Uh, my first couple of plays were all very focused on um, social justice issues. Interesting. Uh, in my community, my cultural community. Because as a poet, I never wrote political poems. I didn't know how to write them in a way that didn't sound like I was hitting you over the head. But what I loved about theater is that I could write a play about a character in a very like dangerous situation or in a situation that makes you kind of like feel for them because it was, uh, you know, empathy is so powerful in mm. theater that then you would question the, 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 you know, the social like issue. What that's created, created that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
How, it's interesting, too, because I would think as a woman of color, you feel an allegiance toward revealing Latinx stories that need to be told. Now, that by the same token, you want to be kind of freed of that in a way also. Mm-hmm. It's not your responsibility, mm-hmm. you know. How do you make that work for yourself, you know, balancing that desire to do good to for our culture, which mm-hmm. you are doing, and then also serve yourself as an artist and not be kind of chained up by it. Yeah, I just want to yeah. put in, like, Latinx stories are American stories, U.S. stories, mm-hmm. yeah. stories of the Americas. And so it's, it, it to me, and not wanting to step on what you're saying, but, like, how do we, how do we it, both express the, the, um, I would say the complexity of often a, a dual existence in mm. many ways, mm-hmm. where in this country we're often looked at as have been looked at as different, have been treated as different when a lot of, you know, like I was born and raised in this country. Mm-hmm. This is my history comes from this country and how to both carry and be proud of heritage that a cultural heritage and ancestors who've come before, mm-hmm. but also how to recognize like, ah, you know what? We are just as much a part of this culture as everybody else. Yes. Yeah. I think for me, it was about trying to, with my writing, I'm trying to expand the idea of who we are as a cultural community. Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking about this since I was in college. I used to write about like cultural hegemony, like papers and history papers, you know, about that. And um, also my own um, childhood, because, you know, English is my first language and Spanish is my second language. And uh, as a child feel, feeling very conflicted and not understanding, like, well, why don't I, you know, feeling uh, intense judgment mm. about why I didn't speak Spanish, you know, when there is complicated oh, reasons. My grandparents did not live anywhere near us. You know, mm. my parents spoke English all the time because of their jobs and Spanish became a private language for them when they were like, we don't want the kids to know what we're saying because mm-hmm. we're talking about something private. Oh. Uh, and so we had to learn it. I mean, we got some phrases like behave and go to bed and go take a bath, you know, like commands uh, where yeah, I know those. But, Be quiet. Um, yeah. But, so I had a very, like, uh, I've been examining my cultural identity for a very long time. Mm. And one of the things in college that I really kind of was uh, writing about, um, like in, in those papers, was that uh, I, I see... Um, my community as kind of like a spectrum of experience from uh, people who've been in this country for like multi-generational because like my family's been here for like three and four generations um, versus more recent immigrants. Add to that different cultural communities from different like I mean I mean different countries of origin mm-hmm. you know that have different like similar but different and distinct um, histories and um, you know just what's the other word I'm looking for um, just expression, like you know, we're not all the same. We're complex, mm. and so I'm very interested in kind of writing because right, I feel like um, in the past, the, some of the some of the the ways we've been represented on stage, if we're not telling those stories, has been very singular. This idea that we're only like very recent immigrants, or we're a maid, <laughs> or mm. we're a gardener, mm. and. I'm writing people who are scientists. Mm-hmm. I'm writing people. I have a lot of artists in my plays. I've got mm. painters and I've got mm-hmm. um, I've got a poetry instructor and I've got, you know, um, academics. And I've got people all over the place. But I'm trying to show, like, I think the more stories I'm writing, I'm, I'm trying to, like, put them on different parts of the spectrum so that the more stories that are told and, and seen, then the, the more fuller and complex, like, idea mm. uh, develop, develops or can be seen of who we are. So, do you think women make inherently better artists? Oh. Theater makers, writers, directors, 
we were, I don't know. I don't know. Like it's, it's interesting, but we were talking about maybe about a week or so ago about who have been keepers of, 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 uh, folk tales and stories mm-hmm. from, for centuries and centuries. Mm-hmm. And it was the women mm-hmm. very frequently in a lot of cultures. The women are the ones who are the culture keepers and the heritage holders and who are passing down information. And so I think there is a, a, um, not to say that this is a skill that that female identified folks own or anything like that, mm-hmm. but I feel that there is a heritage that I personally feel in my family mm-hmm. of women being the the oral storytellers mm-hmm. that I uh, that I embrace because they weren't the one they weren't the men in my mm-hmm. family they were the, they're the women. Do you yeah. guys feel that you have a superpower? You know, something that is really your strength. I mean, I was thinking about this for myself and mine, I think is optimism. You know, I kind of, I go down, I'm like, well, but then when I was a kid, they said, I used to say, but that's all right. (laughs) Just (laughs) kind of got me out a lot of trouble. I mean, emotional, real trouble, not just like I was getting into trouble, but saved me, I think in a way to be able to switch things like that. Mm. I feel I feel like my superpower is um, something that I have to exercise, mm-hmm. which has a couple of different things. Mm-hmm. One is um, working to be a deep listener, mm. which I feel is one. And the other thing, which is more or less exercising, or I don't know. I don't know if it's exercise, but um, a sense of humor. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's important to me. <laughs> I don't know if I have a... I mean, I, I feel like I don't have the right kind of perspective to see superpower. Mm-hmm. Um, like your go-to way of being in the world that you think is really beneficial or... I don't know. You're badassery. I don't know. Can we say that? I mean, I mean, the first thing that popped in my head was just language, my ability to... I mean, yeah, I think... Sure. I think. I mean, it sounds cliche because I'm a playwright, but I, I, if I do say so myself, like, I feel like, um, yeah, I know that I have a good grasp of of uh, language and, mm. and hearing language and, and really kind of finessing mm-hmm. it, especially mm. for my scripts. Do you enjoy listening to people talk? You know, people don't know, but you're a playwright walking around town and you've probably, I remember in acting school, they said, you know, listen to conversations, hear how talk, people talk to each other. That's one of the things my first playwright mentor when I took a class uh, said, one of her exercises for us was like, go sit down with a group, like nearby a group of people who are talking and stereotypically don't let them see you because they might get mad. Write, like try and like completely capture their conversation. And the mm-hmm. thing you notice is how people talk. It's not in a linear fashion. It's it's often like, you know, things drop off and then they come back again or, you know, someone interrupts or someone's not really listening. And it's really fascinating. Um, and so when you see good ensemble writing, it really kind of is great to mm-hmm. kind of see it crackle and, and, and how it feels real. How do you think women can support each other in art making? Do you think it's a responsibility of us as women artists to do that? So many thoughts on this. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I have been doing in New York is I've been coming around groups of both theater makers and directors and producers who are female identified or Non, gender nonconforming, mm-hmm. but in, in a place where we can be supportive of each other. And I have found these places to be really nurturing. And this is something that, um, I mean, we actually met through uh, the Latinx Theater Commons, which mm-hmm. is a movement of, of Latinx theater artists to, to boost the visibility of Latinx theater in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and 
part of that was how do we also support each other and operate from a place of um, letting go of a scarcity mindset and operating from a place of abundance? Mm -hmm. And how do we see each other as colleagues who we can reach out and help and and support mm-hmm. versus competitors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we are the resources. Like we bring a wealth of resources, whether it's knowledge or actual like expertise that we can share. Mm-hmm. You so know? for young Latinx artists, how how would we direct them if they're listening right now? There's a Facebook page. Mm-hmm. If you're not on Facebook, you can also um, the Latinx Theater Commons is is supported by um, not. I mean, well, like uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, HowlRound. I was like, HowlRound is that that organization, Mm -hmm, like from, mm -hmm. has really kind of supported um, our development as, as it's not, we're not really an organization because it's Mm -hmm. it's all volunteers, but Mm -hmm. they have been there from day one um, because uh, the LTC practices, you know, like this sort of... um, What's the word looking like? A commons based approach, mm. which means everyone is trying to build consensus. And mm-hmm. so, how round everyone is, can be a part. There's no membership. Yeah, you don't. If you want to be a part. Like you want to be a part, part of it. You actually want to take on a role, like a leadership role. Mm-hmm. You have an idea that you like. I actually want to do this. Like all you have to do is just say you want to do it and find some people. You know, mm-hmm. that's you really exciting. But part it is of very it is, is too like for younger artists. And the thing that I actually had to learn through the LTC mm-hmm. was it is okay to reach out and ask. Yes, yes. I so get that. And make connections, yeah, make don't relationships. Be afraid. Even if there's mm-hmm. someone who inspires you, who feels out of reach, you know, just, yeah, no. just go there. You can reach out to them. Yeah, that's neat. I was also going to say, I was just connecting. This is again about conversations and mm-hmm. looping back. Because um, um, you, 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 meant, you had asked about how we can support other women artists. Mm-hmm. My plays center around women and, and their experiences. Women are always the protagonists. Mm. Most of my plays, well, I don't know if this is true anymore, but it used to be that the ratio was always like three women to one guy, which is unusual in theater. Mm-hmm. Even I see a lot of even, I think, uh, women playwrights um, who okay. still have men as their main characters, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. And so when I first started writing, I, when I was in the Bay Area, a lot of the actresses, even some of the older actresses too, were like, thank you for writing roles for us. Mm-hmm. Like actual roles where we get to be a part of the story, you know, and not just like an ancillary character. So that's another way mm-hmm. of building women oppor- women's opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah. And right now, as I'm like, I find as I've gotten to like where I am now in my career, my characters are getting older. Mm. And I'm kind of like, that's great because we need roles to keep these uh-huh. women working. Right. Good you know, Because if you're not able to find work, then like, what are you going to do? You right. end up retiring by default. Right. Just because no one, there's nothing for you to be cast in. Mm-hmm. So do you think that art can heal or solve societal challenges? I think that's a tall order for art. Yep. I, I was thinking about that. And to me, the one thing that, that art allows, well... There's many things that art allow you to do. Mm-hmm. But the thing that came to mind was just about expression mm-hmm. and both expression, empathy, mm-hmm. emotional, uh, emotional availability and access mm-hmm. and how important it is when we're able to express ourselves mm-hmm. and how important that is for the, the um, just the, the, the whole organism mm-hmm. and being able to think in different ways and be able to approach um, challenges and visions with with different angles of of just thinking of like what are the different things we can do and to me that if if we have a bunch of people who are operating from whole self mm-hmm. and art is a part of that i think that goes a long way in in creating um, societies that ask people to actually listen and engage with mm-hmm. each other first mm-hmm. versus 
turning people aside. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. I was listening to Mark Maron's uh, podcast, as I was telling you earlier, and he had Jane Fonda on, and she was talking about being a liberal and really coming from that place of, well, yes, that person is doing really vile things, and what happened to them? What happened that they can't feel compassion or the hate? And especially now, I thought, okay, well, if we, if I really believe that, which I think I do, not know so much that art heals, but that the whole self, bringing the whole mm-hmm. person is a path to healing for the whole world, mm-hmm. then I would have to then extrapolate if art can create compassion and empathy, then what would you suggest, what kind of exercise art would you suggest to Donald Trump to heal him? Could that person be healed who I don't hate people. I It's so hard for me now to get my head around what's happening and think, how could this person turn it around? And I thought, could artists could artists make some suggestions to heal he that epiphany on his deathbed or I, something like that. But you know, yeah. one thing I wanted to add to what you were saying, Rebecca, mm-hmm. um, it's about empathy mm-hmm. and one, and, uh, cause there's also research that backs it up mm-hmm. that, um, you've, we've all stubbed our toe, right? Mm-hmm. And when you see someone stub their toe, you, we all kind of go wince and go, Ooh, because we know what that feels like, mm-hmm. but there's actually something happening in our brain that we're re-experiencing that pain. Mm-hmm. And the same thing happens in theater. Mm-hmm. When you watch people, undergo some sort of like emotional journey, you're actually remembering times that it has happened to you and you're kind of creating like an empathy connection with mm-hmm. them. And I think if we are trying to practice to be whole people, you know, em- you know, that we have empathy, that we were listeners, that we're actually considering other points of view, that we have to think of society as like a person in that way too. Mm-hmm. How do we get them to, how do we get society to practice mm-hmm. those kinds of things, just like you were saying? And I think art is one of those things, like multiple experiences being presented. And the more you learn, the, and this is why cities tend to have more liberal peoples because there's more experiences and different types of people mingling together. Mm-hmm. And the more you're exposed to differences, the more you're kind of open to listening and kind of open to um, something that maybe felt other mm-hmm. at one point. You know, yeah, it's and interesting because so. I was thinking about when you do experience feelings in the theater space, you, those individuals who are able, they aren't fearful of feeling. And that's where I feel, (laughs) a lot of feels, but uh, that's where I think maybe is the disconnect. Some people are, have protected themselves so fiercely for lots of reasons, danger of body and mind, that they can't do it. And that's maybe where some people are almost impenetrable. It's like arrested yeah. development. If you mm-hmm. think about the, the the emotional development of like from our childhood to where mm-hmm. you are now, I mean, as children, we're very self centered, mm-hmm. um, and and we're very much about our own feelings and our own experience, and hopefully we grow out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently, some people don't. And he's been rewarded. Like if we're taking it back to yeah, the president, mm-hmm. he's been rewarded for a certain way of life his mm. entire life. Right. And without any kind of perspective on his privilege. Any kind of perspective on privilege. Mm-hmm. And as far as he's concerned, this is the way that he needs to live his life. Mm-hmm. And he would, like for me, he would have to be either suddenly open because, and these things unfortunately often come with like huge trauma. Yeah. And there's something that happens, some sort of loss that causes people to like, radically shift perspective. Right. And I mean, I don't want to be like, 
everybody is, you know, nobody is, um, a, like everybody has the ability to change mm-hmm. because I don't know. I mean, maybe they do, maybe they don't. Mm-hmm. And, but I, I feel like it, it's not going to be a play. Yeah. He's not going to go to a play and it's not going to change his life. I'm like, could someone just go do some breath work? That guy. I mean, mean, but there also is like how much emotional intelligence is there for for that perspective shift to happen? Yeah. And how many years do we got? Good point. You know, like how long is it going to take? And And I'd rather put my energy on other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I'd rather put my energy in. So no artistic idea. You would think, hey, do this. Not go see a play. Anything, because actually this kind of ties into a question I have for you both, which is what are your practices to fill your own personal artistic cup? Mm I, well, some of the things that, that I do, I sometimes have to walk away from theater. Mm. And then sometimes I have to walk back to theater mm-hmm. because sometimes we just get caught in our own heads about what it is. And for me, it's like, how do we, how do we connect to nature? How do I connect to sensory things? How mm-hmm. do I connect to things where I'm actually engaging with another human being? Mm-hmm. How is it? Uh, music is a huge mm-hmm. inspiration for me. How's music playing into this piece or does it? It, I mean, well, it has it has music in it, mm-hmm. but to me, the the musicality is the language mm. for this particular mm. piece. And the other thing that I would say is the this is like totally not music at all, but like the music of isolation mm. that these characters are experiencing mm-hmm. is is um, which is more the which to me is more of a sensory experience than sort of like a you know here's some jazz or something like that hmm. which is also a sensory experience but I don't know how I feel my artistic cup but I, I think I'm, I'm becoming more aware of how like my older practices of like oh I need downtime I need to watch some TV or shows or movies mm-hmm. is not really charging my batteries the way I thought it would hmm. at least creatively I used to think that was how I charge my creative batteries but I realized that I need more quiet space for ideas to come. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think philosophers have always talked about going on walks through the woods, and that's how they would think mm-hmm. their ideas. Mm-hmm. But it's when you have a space away from all those distractions that suddenly, because usually when I'm washing dishes or washing my hair, like those mu- like mm-hmm. mundane tasks, suddenly mm-hmm. ideas start happening. So I need to create more space for that. Um, I like photography. I'm, I, I love, mm. like, like uh, that's one of the things I love about Instagram is, like, looking at photographers' work. Mm. Um, really just love, like, what people can do with a camera. Is there a photographer in particular that you'd want to support on Instagram? Well, sh- she's no longer living, mm-hmm. <laughs> but Toni Frisell. Mm-hmm. She was a fantastic um, photographer, and all her work's in the public domain. Oh. She, um, but she was, like, one of the first women to um, have photos in... What was it Sports Illustrated? Oh. She photographed like um, Tuskegee Airmen. Like she also photographed mm. like famous couples, like the Kennedys, and her 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 the portraits as well as just her landscapes, and it's just beautiful. Mm. Ooh, I want to plug two photographers because sure. I realized I got a lot of inspiration from a, pho- a photographer for this show, oh, mm-hmm. Graciela Iturbide, oh. who's not on Instagram mm-hmm. but has tremendous tremendous work where she's f- photographed all through Mexico. Can you Black be and so white. kind to spell that name? Graciela, and her last name oh. is Iturbide, so I T U R B I D E. Great. Graciela, just to make sure name. people can. Uh, yeah. She's phenomenal. Mm. And then the other one, Diego Huerta, mm-hmm. who is is actively on Instagram and goes around Mexico and takes these breathtaking photos mm. of indigenous people in Mexico. Oh, nice. All over. And How do you spell like, Huerta? 
H-U-E-R-T-A. Mm-hmm. Because I don't speak Spanish, I'm thinking, how can I really track these people down? <laughs> yeah, Thank you. He's, he's phenomenal. Oh, that's great. Mm-hmm. It's fun because visual art mm-hmm. as a jumping off point is really exciting. Yeah, I get very excited about visuals as well. Yeah. I need to go to more museums. When I was in L.A. last, I went oh. up to, oh gosh. Go to the Broad? I can't remember the, the Getty. Name. I think it was the Getty. Is that the one you take the little tram? Yes. And I only had so much time there. And, yeah. I, and I was like, um, that's great. I just started taking notes while I was looking at paintings. Oh. Because sometimes I'm like, how do you experience a painting? Yes. Especially when you don't have a lot of time. And so I was just like trying to write down all the details that I, my eye was catching as a way of really engaging with the work. Mm. And noticing like um, like small changes in the color and kind of realizing, oh, that's a river. You know, like this, this, it, was, it was great, but it was, it was so brief. And I'm like, I have to go back. Oh, I love museums so much. And so dance. Inspiring. Yeah. That's the mm. other thing that I think inspires me. A lot. Oh. Dancing yourself as well as watching? Uh, I mean, you sure. Yeah. But also <laughs> seeing uh-huh. the visuals of dance, I think. It, I've always been interested in like how to, how to integrate those stunning visuals that come up in van- yes. and dance mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. theater. I was, mm. When I was teaching playwriting to my playwriting one students in Iowa, I, I showed them a clip of uh, Pina. The Pina Bausch oh, movie, so because fabulous. I mean, it's so like that's visual storytelling. Because yes. I was like, can you write a scene where there's no dialogue? I totally Do ripped that. off a Pina Bausch moment. For the thing <laughs> in this? Not in this. Okay. Not in this. No, her tree. Her tree moment. Where oh, you're dancing oh. Carrie the tree. Yeah, there was a show. It was for my drama league director fest show. It's oh, fun. Which was translated by Daniel Hakes, oh, yeah. by the way. Poor kidneys to sue despair. And it was about, it's about these ridiculous, uh, this, this writer who was running around Europe uh, during World War II trying to rewrite Waiting for Godot. Oh. And so it's just this silly comedy about this frustrated, like, agonized writer. He's so agonized. And there was this moment where we're like, well, since he's stealing everything, let's just steal, steal this. Tree. <laughs> so, I mean, because it was very Godot. There was like one tree and oh. it was his special tree that he took, but it was dying, you know, all these oh, kinds of things. Funny. So he ended up like putting it on his back and like doing oh. this. It was, yeah. Oh, that's neat. Yeah. I don't know if it was a stunning visual, but it was... When I got a kick out of it. <laughs> no, but I love Pina Bausch. I mean, it's just oh, me too. beautiful. Like, it's visual storytelling. Mm-hmm. So I asked on Facebook if people wanted to ask questions, and Amelia Smart Denson asked a question because she had had an experience with you yes. that she was so appreciative of. Connected through Melissa Crespo. There you go. Right. And uh, she wanted to know more about the NNPN Rolling World premiere, which is pretty exciting, how it works, benefits, and challenges. I can talk a little bit about that. Um, so I first learned about the National New Play Network, or it's also this, the acronym is NNPN, um, back in 2007, because that's when Octavio Solis had his Rolling World premiere, I think, of Lydia. I think oh. that's I think that's what it was. Maybe look that up. So NNPN is a consortium of theaters all around the country. They've been around this. They've been um, a collective of theaters for about twenty years now, and they do this thing called Rolling World premieres. So, for those who don't know, in theater there's kind of a thing where um, theaters always want to be the ones to be like, we have the world premiere, pr- world premiere itis, and then if you already had your world premiere, like, well then we don't want to do that play. <laughs> so there, there was. Um, kind of a trend where plays would only have this one premiere and then nothing else would happen sometimes. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
plays and playwrights need productions because mm-hmm. the play's not done just because you've put it up once. Mm-hmm. You learn so much, especially once an audience is there, and you continue to work on the play. It can take a couple of productions before you finally refine the script to a point where you're like, I'm ready to, to step away. So NNPN um, developed what they call rolling world premieres, where member theaters basically all pledge to produce that play, one play, in the same season. Mm. And they all get to use the Rolling World Premiere credit, you know. And NNPN also has, like, a budget that they can give a little bit of money so that the playwright can go out and attend rehearsal or attend the opening, attend the openings. Because each production, it's not touring. Each theater has its own separate and unique production team oh, how great. and cast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So each, you know, like, I've seen now three versions of this play mm. with three different sets and three different actors, of, you know, in the lead. And, and this is the last production? There's one more. One There's more one more in after. Chicago. Mm-hmm. In mm-hmm. Chicago. Yeah. Cool. So the first one was last fall at New Jersey Rep. Mm-hmm. And, and actually this weekend is closing weekend at Kitchen Dog Theater in Dallas mm-hmm. as we open here at Milagro. And then Halcyon in Chicago will have um, the last production sometime in the fall. Oh. And so with each production, I'm going along and working on the play or just like refining it or like learning. I've been learning a lot about how to talk about this play Mm -hmm. with directors and how to shape either performances, character arcs, or moments in the play that are really critical. Like me learning what's critical about how to communicate to directors has been really useful. And so that's been really great for me. Other playwrights may uh, make big changes between each production. Like they say, like, I want to try this. And in this second production, maybe they'll make a change and kind of use it as a test opportunity with mm. this, you know, particular uh, theater and, and audience. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, refine that change or revert to the original, you know, script in some way. Mm. So does That's, that answer the question? Oh, yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, it, it really makes sense, uh, the idea of having that opportunity to see your play develop. And you get a lot of eyes on it. A lot of A eyes. lot of expert you know, oh, absolutely. Experience to feed you, really. It's been very useful. Mm-hmm. And I'm so, and this was actually the life I wanted for this particular play since I kind of had learned about the Rolling One premiere. So, like, I would love for Wolf at the Door to have, you know, be seen in multiple parts of the country, mm-hmm. you know, with, with different creative teams. I, I wanted that life for the play, you know. So, what, what would you hope that audiences are leading with? Tonight's opening night. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So people will hear of us after opening night. I, I am interested in, in the idea. I'm always interested, and in particularly for this one, in hope. Mm. And that both in hope and that we have resources in ourselves greater than we can imagine. Mm. That's nice. I like that. Because um, if you'd asked me, what do you want people to get out of this? I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I want people to go on a satisfying emotional journey. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's um, it's it's labeled a fairy tale, but please know that this this isn't for small children. No, mm-hmm. I have other yeah. fairy tales that I would like. Yes, family friendly. Wolf at the door is not. Mm-hmm. I would not let my 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 ten year old sobrinos mm-hmm. come because I'm just like you know this is a little too dark. It's mm-hmm. a very physical um, play. You know, I'm just like mm, I don't think this is really something for children. But I think teenagers and older, I think, would be okay to come see this. Do you have some you know? talkbacks and such and other deep dives for yeah, audience? Yeah, I feel like, yeah, that we've already had a few conversations mm-hmm. started, and I know that there's some conversations that, are, that we'll be continuing mm-hmm. that are part of what Milagro usually does with the plays. 
So if you want to learn more about this play, and certainly if you want to get tickets, you're going to want to go to milagro.org, or you can call 503-236-7253. And the show opens tonight, which is Friday, May 3rd, and it will continue on until uh, May 25th. So get online, find out uh, what's going on at Milagro, be a part of a rolling world premiere, which is really exciting. Mm -hmm. And Maricela and Rebecca, thank you so much for talking to me. It, uh, oh, it's just fun to sit with women who are making great work. Yeah, thank you. Thank thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Hey, everybody. We have a correction to the minutes. <laughs> and it's in, in regard to Cinco de Mayo. <laughs> when we came out after I was talking to Maricela and Rebecca, we started talking about Cinco de Mayo. And all of a sudden, they enlightened me about what the heck this is a PSA moment. Yes. The PSA moment. Often the Cinco de Mayo is seen in this country as Independence Day mm -hmm. and as celebration. And, and it's celebrated in many ways across the U.S. in a way that is actually never celebrated in Mexico. Yes. When I was a kid growing up in Texas, I had a terrible time remembering well, which day is Mexican Independence Day? Because the SECs and Cinco de Mayo were celebrated in the same way, which is they were beer holidays, sort of like St. Patty's Day is here. Mm -hmm. And it just felt like I just never knew. And I mean, I, I learned later, and here's what we're here to tell you, <laughs> is that in Mexico, the only people who actually celebrate Cinco de Mayo are the people of the town of Puebla, because that's the date that they kicked the French out. Napoleon's forces mm -hmm. were kicked out of this town by a an army of 3,000 Toltec soldiers. Mm. And they, so, and, and the, there'll be plenty of people listening to this be like, actually, this is what happened. And great, because I can't remember all the details. But part of it is they won the battle, lost the war, mm -hmm. but won the battle. So it is a yeah. celebration of beating a, an emperor's army with very few, um, with, with very little ammunition, with very mm -hmm. little people. power. So yeah, underdog. because the French were mm -hmm. the underdogs won. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because the French were occupying Mexico at that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you've ever been to a Six Flags, like um, one of those places, like with the rides and everything. Yes. Um, in Texas, they're called Six Flags over Texas because there's six flags that flew over this part of the U.S. when it was Mexico. Um, I mean, I can't remember all the flags because I think Six Flags actually originated in Texas because it has like the Texas flags part of those flags. But it's like the Mex the French, the French flag is one of those flags oh. because they were occupiers. I think Mexico owed France money. Probably. And they were like, <laughs> well, we're going to invade <laughs> and, and take possession. And that's why, because um, I, li I lived in Querétaro, the city where they executed... Um, Napoleon had puts kind of like a puppet dictator mm. in place. And I was in the town where he was, eventually when they got rid of him, he was assassinated, not assassinated, he was executed. Well, the potato, potato. Yeah. So that's so a little just bit. so you know. So Independence Day is actually in September. And don't go around saying happy Cinco de Mayo to everybody. No. <laughs> it's just, Cinco de Mayo. Like, just so you know, that's what that holiday is. Yes, it is confusing, but you should know. Mm -hmm. So this has been your Latinx Minute. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> De nada. <laughs> Why do we sound so good? Because we're at Dead Aunt Thelma's studio and Mike Moore is engineering for us. Thanks, Dead Aunt Thelma's. Thanks, Mike.